0: Once again, guys, thank you so much for persevering throughout a whole like school year and getting up early every other Saturday for 16 times or something like that or 17, whatever it ends up being. So grateful that you would do that. We're getting close. We have, I think counting today, four more meetings, um, two on qualifications and two on hermeneutics. So um, this Saturday on elder qualifications, Two weeks from now, Scott Damrus will lead us through the deacon qualifications. I want you to think about that. So, with that in mind, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And what I want to do this morning as we think about reviewing through our uh, disciplines, is I want to do it through the lens of the qualifications. Okay. If your spiritual disciplines that you are focusing on all moved you in this direction, and then you read the qualifications and you found out the qualifications aimed a man in this direction. That'd kind of be a bummer, wouldn't it? I mean, you've been working on all these things over here. Not that you necessarily all want to become an elder or must be an elder. But wouldn't it be better if the spiritual disciplines were running in the very direction that the elder qualifications are aiming? And that's, that's what you're going to find out as you read this. So as you, as you read through chapter 3... Verses 1 to 7, and then 8 to 13, and then Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 9. I want you to think of how a man cares for his own soul, how a man cares for his household, and how a man just is around people, how he cares for people, how he ministers to people. What is he like around other people outside of his home? Think about those three categories that's discipline 1, 2, and 3 as we look at these qualifications chapter 3 verse 1 of 1st Timothy it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer it is a fine work he desires an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife temperate prudent respectable hospitable able to teach not addicted to wine or pugnacious but gentle peaceable Free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert. So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. And then Paul moves to the deacon qualifications in verse eight. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must uh, first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now let's turn over to Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason, Paul says, I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains... And appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And then the reason is given why in verse 10, why he must be able to hold fast that faithful word. It's because there are many rebellious men who are empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who are leading whole households astray. So... um, There's your qualifications. There are some abilities or skills in there, like being able to teach and um, things like that. But for the most part, uh, those are all character issues that are either cultivated and fanned into a flame in discipline. One, as a man shepherds his own heart to the word of God, to know God and to bring himself under the control of God and his word and his spirit, or they are. Character qualities or leadership abilities that are cultivated in the home with um, children and a wife. Um, or they are descriptions of a man about what he is like when he's out among people. He's not a fighter. He doesn't intimidate people. He doesn't shove or anything like that. He's, he's, he's concerned about other people and he's gentle and he's peaceable and things like that. Okay, So your disciplines that we're aiming for and Build are all about... You being a godly man, you being a godly man, regardless of what God ever does with you, it is pleasing to God that your life would be characterized by godliness, both in your home and out in ministry in the church and outside the walls of the church. But. We have an intent as elders beyond just your own personal godliness. And that is that maybe God at some point, some place in some men might raise men up to a character qualification to be able to serve in the church at the office of deacon or as elder. And so that's why we're putting this towards the end of the year uh, as we cover these things and build that at some point, eventually we want to cover the qualifications and direct you and just get you to start thinking now about when was the last time you prayed through the list of deacon qualifications for you? Or elder qualifications for you? You might think, that's not even on my radar. That's alright. That's okay. There's those, that list that you find there, whichever one you're looking at, every single one of those qualifications is expected of all Christians. Are the elders the only ones who are supposed to be above reproach? Well, Philippians 2.15 has two different words for how, as the children of God, we have to be above reproach blameless, innocent. Um, so you're not wasting time by focusing and praying through a, a list of character qualifications. Do you want to be able to manage your own household well? Well, there's good prayer request there for you as you go through the list of deacon qualifications or elder qualifications. So with that in mind, let's pray. And then we're going to break up into small groups for a little bit this morning and then come back and we're going to talk through the elder qualifications. All right? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to be together and to be before your word. I thank you so much for these men and the encouragement that they are to look out and see so many here and um, so many men eager to um, align their life um, under your word and under you. Lord, may today um, move us forward uh, into greater godliness and greater pursuit of you, Lord. I pray that none of us would be discouraged looking at a list of qualifications and think, well, I'm a subpar Christian. Because I'm not that man, Lord, I pray that we would um, rely on you wherever you have us. That you would help us even just today to take one more step towards you, one more step of progression and growth in the knowledge of Jesus and in love uh, for Him, and in a, another step of obedience, another step of worship. Lord, draw us from wherever we are closer to you. Use our time together to accomplish that that would be glorifying to you it would be honoring to you it magnified jesus in our life so please lord help us we ask it in jesus name amen first timothy chapter three we are going to today uh turn the fire hose on and uh there's going to be much more that's not going to get in your brain that will get in your brain in your heart perhaps but here's what i want to encourage you to do um Maybe write down a key point here or there. Don't try to write down everything that we're going to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm just going to move right along. If you have a question, interrupt me, stop. But I want to give you an overview today of the elder qualifications in both First Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Now, there are some uh, overlap it, within the two lists, uh, same qualifications found in both lists. And so we won't cover them twice, but um, I want to make sure that we... At least get an overview so that when you're thinking about this list, maybe even starting to pray through this list, you've got something, you know, that you can, uh, your own notes that you can look off of and and go, oh, I know what that means. I know what temperate means uh, or whatever. Okay. All right. So here we go. First Timothy chapter three, verse one, Paul says to Timothy, this is after his uh, first Roman imprisonment that is at the end of Acts 28, uh, 28, the end of the book of Acts. Uh, He was released, we know. And began to do another missionary journey of sorts, and he uh, left Timothy in Ephesus. And this is what he is saying to Timothy: It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Uh, the, the word family for elder, if you want to write these three terms down, it's overseer, which is here. It's the word elder, and it's the word pastor. Those three terms. We've talked about this on Sundays uh, in Acts 20 when we were there that those are the same guy uh, in the the church. Overseer, elder, and pastor are all the same. The word um, elder in 1 Timothy is found over in chapter 5, verse 17 and verse 19. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So you have overseer in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul uses the word elder there. And then in um, Luke 20... Verses 17 and 28, you can write them down. This is um, really, a, those are two very important verses. Acts twenty seventeen and verse 28. What, what Luke says is that Paul called the elders to meet him in Miletus, right? And then when Paul's talking to them, he says, um, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. So there's the second word. He called the elders. The Holy Spirit made you overseers. And the action that is put together with elders and overseers is... He made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. So there's your three terms in one passage, all defining the same group of guys. Elders are overseers who shepherd or who pastor. Okay? How many elders do you have at Grace Bible Church? How many overseers do you have at Grace Bible Church? How many pastors do you have at Grace Bible Church? All the same answer. Okay? Uh, It's not the paid guys who are pastors, it's not the staff guys who are pastors, and the other guys are elders. They are all elder, pastor, overseers who shepherd. Okay? All right. So there's the word. That's what Paul's talking about. And he says it is a fine work he desires to do. Make no mistake about it. Eldering is work. It is a work. It's a task. That is uh, to be... Uh, carried out and the task is that of shepherding it's primarily overseeing the flock it's caring for others as they grow towards Christ and grow in Christ likeness it's it's the task of helping them to stay away from sin it's the task of helping the church be pleasing to the lord and paul says it is a fine work that he desires to do it's an excellent work it's a worthwhile work it's a noble work it is a good work what is more precious to god than the church that his son his own son shed his blood for Um, caring for those people, uh, caring for that flock, that's a fine, excellent, worthwhile, good work to desire. Now, he has two different words in this first sentence on uh, aspiring or desiring. Do you see those two verbs there? If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. Uh, Paul acknowledges that men in the church are going to experience Some type of inward desire or aspiration for the office. Now, what if all that Paul said was verse 1 and verses 2 through 7 didn't follow? What would you conclude? The only way to know if a man is an elder or should be an elder is if he what? He just desires it. But what does Paul do with verses 2 to 7? Um, he fleshes out that aspiration, that desire. Paul provides six more verses to help the church understand what true Holy Spirit-given desire for the office of overseer looks like. The Holy Spirit, indeed, guys, will give to men in the church, not to every man in the church, but the Holy Spirit will give to men the desire to shepherd the flock. But then that same Holy Spirit wrote through Paul what qualifications to look at in a man that will actually affirm that the Holy Spirit indeed inspired the man toward the office of elder. Uh, Desire is important. You wouldn't want a man to shepherd the flock who really didn't want to, right? But desire is not everything. Desire must have accompanying it moral character qualification. Desire is actually tested against character. It's tested by character. It is affirmed by character. If a man desires it, but his character does not affirm the desire, so what? It's just a desire. Aspires is a very strong verb. Um, you can see chapter six, verse ten. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Longing for it is the is the same verb, aspiring. The context determines whether or not the desire is good or evil. Okay, in chapter six, it's evil. Chapter 3, it's good. Um, Same thing with desire. It's the word that we use sometimes in some passages to describe lust. It can be a good desire, it can be a bad desire. Either way, it's strong. So when you think of the Holy Spirit making men overseers of the church, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when you think of that, you shouldn't be surprised that the desire within those men would be strong desires to want to shepherd. All right, so now let's talk about the qualifications. Verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach. Above reproach, that is the banner umbrella qualification which uh, stands over all of the other ones. It's not the first one among a whole bunch of others that's equal just like all the others. The way that the grammar is here is this is the umbrella qualification and all of the rest of them fall under that and help you understand what it means to be above reproach. The way to measure this qualification is through the specifics of each one that follows. Above reproach here means to be free from any offense or disgraceful blight of character or conduct, especially as they are described in verses 2-7. to By the way, probably one of the best books that has everything about eldering in one place is Alexander Strauch's book. I meant to bring it this morning, I forgot. Um... It's called Biblical Eldership. <clears throat> it's a great book. You need to have that book, especially if you're thinking and anticipating, uh, wanting to, you know, consider elder pastoral ministry. Uh, you need you need that book. Um, it is it is a, like I said, all that you would want to think about eldering in one place. Uh, it's a, it's a very helpful book. Um, it means being above reproach means an accusation can't stick to the man. It's it's not perfection. But the man is exemplary, and that is the difference between the elder and the rest of the believers in the body. The elder is exemplary in the quality of being above reproach, while the rest of us are also striving to be above reproach. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Write it down. Let me read it to you. Philippians two fifteen. Paul is... Um... Writing to just the church at large and he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you, the church, will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So Paul expects believers in Jesus Christ to be blameless. He expects them to be above reproach. And then this is also the umbrella of, uh, qualification for an elder. So then what's the difference between Joe Blow's above reproachedness in the body and Joe Elder's? Um, the elder is to be exemplary in the above reproach. He can help lead the rest of the people who are trying to be above reproach forward by his own example of being above reproach. Okay. What you're going to find in every single one of these qualifications for elder, for deacon, um, for elder in chapter 1 of Titus, is that every single one of them is expected of every single believer. Okay, it's not that the elders have a certain kind of character qualification set that God's looking for, and there's an entirely different one for the rest of the body. They're the very same ones elders are to be exemplary in it. Not perfect, exemplary, above reproach. Um. Thabiti Anyabwili, or however you say his last name, has a great little book, too, on... um, Is it called Finding Deacons and Elders? Something like that. Excellent little book. It only deals with 1 Timothy 3. It doesn't deal with Titus 1. But it is another excellent book. I would encourage you to have that. Here's what he says. It's critically important for an elder to be above reproach. Everyone will assume at least two things once a man is made an elder. That, number one, he is an example to all the sheep in all areas of life and... That he will receive the benefit of the doubt against uncorroborated allegations of wrongdoing. That's why it's important for the guy to be above reproach. Because he's going to get the benefit of the doubt because he's an elder. Um, Few things are worse, he says, for a church than having a man who lacks good character be able to set a bad example while also being shielded by the generosity of judgment that comes with this office. So the elder is to be above criticism. The way that he lives is just simply out of reach of criticism. Um, He's a man who is marred by no disgrace. Now here's the question I have for you as you think about this. What determines if a man is indeed above reproach? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. What determines if a man is above reproach? Does the man himself determine that he is above reproach? Does he come and tell the elders, I just want you to know... I'm above reproach. I believe I am, and so I am. What determines if a man is above reproach? This qualification, along with all of the others, guess what, guys? It rests in the eyes of the beholders. And that's just the way God has it. Um, A man can believe that he is above reproach all day long. But if his wife doesn't think so, if his children don't think so, if his elders don't think so, it doesn't matter what he thinks about himself. Because the qualifications are put into the eyes of the beholders who watch. And that's a very interesting thing. I mean, God in his sovereignty could have done the whole Cain thing. Cain got some kind of mark on his head, right? Or somehow... God could have just come and at some point in a man's life when he's above approach, God could have just stamped him right on the head, E, elder. And there'd just be no doubt. And he could just always appeal, see? Elder, right? But he didn't do that. The way that God determines it is that the man must live his life in front of other people and then he has to rest um, in God's sovereign work through the perceptions of others. It's very important. Um, What do you think about that? What do you think about God being sovereign over their perception of you? It's tough, isn't it? Mark? It is. No, it is. I want to know what you think. Yeah, and you've got that working on the other side. That's why, like, especially for elders, you don't take a, you you don't entertain a, a criticism except on the basis of two or three witnesses. There's always somebody who doesn't think you should be an elder or a deacon. There's always somebody somewhere, and so it's not a hundred percent that every single person must always at every single look. I don't think I should be an elder more than anybody else thinks that. Maybe I hope, um, but. You, you're, you're keeping your life out in front of others so that their perceptions of you are, can corroborate the character in your life that's being developed. The first one on the list that follows above reproach in both lists is husband of one wife. You can see that in Titus 1, six. That's uh, first on both lists. This was a problem in the early church. Uh, the believers in, across the Roman Empire came out of a very heavy pagan life where sexual immorality was rampant. It was just commonplace. Um, So the elder had to be a man who stood out stark and clear from that in order to be exemplary for the rest of the believers. A one-woman man is the literal uh, translation of that was Paul's way of describing that kind of man uh, who was morally pure. The description is about much more than how many wives he has. You don't go to a guy and say, how many wives do you have? I only have one. Oh, you're qualified to be an elder. That's great. has nothing to do with that. It means the man's sexual, moral life is devoted to and committed to only one woman. A man can be have only one wife, but if he's got a an adulteress on the side, he's not a one-woman man, right? So this says more about just his purity than it does about his marital status. A single man can and must be this way. Uh, this qualification, a husband of one wife, does not... Uh, Excludes single men, it just means that that single man does not yet know the name of that one woman. Right? And so he is keeping himself morally pure for that one woman, who will be, Lord willing, someday, his wife. And then we'll all know her name and we'll be able to see that. he a man is to be a one woman man in the sense that he is completely satisfied to romance only one woman to be emotionally attached to only one woman sexually given to only one woman and that is his wife Um, how do you cultivate that sexual moral loyalty within Uh, let me give you a couple things to think about number one feed your heart and your mind with god's will for sexual purity God's will for sexual purity is not what this world puts before you. God says, one man, one woman, in marriage, sexual intimacy there. Feed your mind with that truth. Because how many times during the day do you hear that from the radio, the internet, or anybody else in the world? You are never, almost never going to hear that. And if you don't come across that in scripture on, enough, you're going to be influenced more by that message that, hey, you know, sexual gratification and pleasure, that can come m- maybe in some other ways. So first, just feed your mind with God's will for sexual Purity and pleasure. It's the context of marriage to only one woman. Meditate on those texts. Embrace wholeheartedly God's will in those texts. Don't just tolerate it. Embrace it. Secondly, fight at the level of your desires and your passions against lust. Guys, if you can control and say no to your lust inside your own heart, then you have a much better chance of saying no to an actual temptress who might someday be in front of you. But if you can't say no to your own desires, what do you think is going to happen when an actual temptress is in front of you? Thirdly, put distance between you and sexual enticements as much as you can. Read Proverbs 7 and watch how that young man was foolish and he took the way to her house. He went right by mean, He just put himself in the path of the adulteress and he fell. Put as much space between. Be a runner. Did you know a godly man is a runner? Flee youthful lusts. Joseph left his clothes in her hands and took off running. A godly man is a runner. Get away physically. Separate yourself from the sexual temptation. Lastly, pursue and study your wife. Fill your mind with her and her love. Satisfy yourself with her love for you. Proverbs 5.19. Husband of one wife. It's at the first of both lists under above reproach. Second one in, in chapter 3, verse 2 is temperate. Temperate. Some see uh, these next three as linked together. Um, to be temperate means that a man is not easily carried away spiritually into error into false teaching, into trends, into sinful behavior. He's not easily carried away by his emotions. He's just not easily carried away. He's able to kind of stand and he just stays where he is. It's a man who is not given to excess. He's moderate. He's watchful so that he doesn't jump the gun into error. Okay? A temperate runner who's a sprinter gets up on the blocks and doesn't false start all the time. They wait, listening, waiting for the sound of the gun, and then they're gone. That's a temperate kind of illustration. Mental self-control is what is involved. Emotional self-control is what is involved. Even doctrinal self-control. A temperate man must be a man who's not fleeting off into one doctrinal um, trend to another that's fancy and cool in evangelicalism. That's not very temperate. Um, He is so internally committed that he can't easily be carried away, spiritually speaking, into questionable arenas. It's internal self-mastery. One way to measure yourself by is how swept up have you been in the past by faddish authors and trends, primarily in Christendom. Faddish movements. Man, it's hard. Something big, the big Christian evangelical wave comes upon the scene and it's got its banner and it's got its website and it's got its group and it's got whatever it is. And it can be like, man, we should jump on that. That is, that's cool. They've even got gospel in their name. And I mean, it's, I mean, this is everything. And then sometimes it's just good just to be temperate. Just stand where you are. Keep your Bible open. Don't criticize it. But don't affirm it necessarily. Just watch. Just be temperate. And then give it time. And then watch what happens. Uh, be temperate. Second word is prudent in verse 2. Temperate, prudent. This also has to do with self-control. It is the same word in Titus eight in the New American Standard translated sensible. I don't know why the, the NAS did that. Um, but it's the same word is in Titus eight. It means that he rules over his impulses rather than being ruled by his impulses. Watch these kinds of impulses in your life. I'll give you three categories of impulses. They may or may not be bad in and of themselves. Fleshly, worldly impulses, watch over those. Those are the impulses of the flesh. Those are sinful impulses. You need to watch those kinds of desires. But then there's creaturely impulses, like you're thirsty. So you want something to drink. You're hungry. You want something to eat. You need more coffee. You want more coffee. You have an impulse for more coffee. Okay? Or or whatever. Watch over those. You need to be controlled over those impulses. In and of themselves, not necessarily sinful, right? But you have to be a self controlled, sensible, prudent man in regards to those. One more area of impulses to watch out for ideological ones, ideas, thoughts. You have to be able to control the impulses you have for ideas cleverness theologically is something to be really careful about to not try to be clever theologically to not try to be clever methodologically when it comes to how the church carries out ministry here's what john stott said how shall i well actually he's quoting somebody else from the 16th century Um, how shall i be able to rule over others if i have not full power and command of myself Stott later goes on to say, leaders are often left for considerable periods of uns... Uh, I'm sorry, let me start over. Leaders are often left for considerable periods unsupervised so that they have to supervise themselves to be sure they are still people of flesh and blood with the same emotions and passions as other human beings. When an elder is sitting there all on his own and all he has is time because he's got to do work and nobody else sees, you need to be a sensible, prudent man. Uh, to supervise yourself. The next word is respectable. Out of the three terms that are put together here, um, temperate, prudent, respectable, this one is the most externally measured. Um, the, The first two are primarily internal types of things to be able to think about, but perhaps respectable is what other people conclude about a man who is temperate and who is prudent. Respectable means having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration in others. If somebody is respectable, you look at their life and you go, I admire that. Right? It's an expression of high regard for somebody else. And it probably includes the idea of well-ordered living. That's built into this word. So the idea then would be a well-ordered life, a self-disciplined life, a temperate life, a prudent life, is one then that would evoke high admiration in others. What would be the opposite of respectable Well, somebody who has disorderly living, they're not disciplining themselves at all. And no one pauses to admire that kind of life. That kind of living. An elder must be respectable. Next word in verse 2 is hospitable. Hospitable. Um, Literally, it is stranger lover. That's the word in the Greek. It is a lover of strangers. And in context, the meaning is rooted really in first... I know when we say, hey, is that person very hospitable? We have our own context what we mean that in. Here's the first century context that you have to keep this word in to begin with, and then we can build implications off of it. Um, In the first century spread of the gospel... There was tons of persecution. So you had Christian exiles, you had Christian fugitives, you had Christian even missionaries. Think of Acts chapter 7 and 8 when Paul begins his uh, persecution of the believers and Philip is off running with the gospel. Where's Philip going to stay? Stay in other Christians' home, other believers' homes. and so the elder was to gladly receive in the first century these who had been scattered because of persecution. John 3, um, I'm sorry, third John is all about this. Um, there is a man on the scene who is, not, is, is kicking out Christians, not even letting them stay. Um, so again, the elder is to have his home be a retreat for the fleeing, preaching Christian stranger. Okay. Uh, and the elder in the first century was to be exemplary in that um, so that the whole church could be here's some other passages where the whole church is expected also to be hospitable in this sense Romans 12.13 Hebrews 13.2 and 1 Peter 4.9 Romans 12.13 Hebrews 13.2 and 1 Peter 4.9 those are exhortations to the body as a whole to be hospitable but the elder was to be exemplary in hospitality so uh, we don't mean necessarily have that same exact situation today where Christians are on the run from persecution and they need a place to stay and they're not going to stay at the quality and they're going to stay at your house. But the idea is that the home is an important tool for the elder. Everything that the elder has, possesses, is, is his to be able to use to share and give it away to others so that they can benefit from it. The home for the elder is to be one of his favorite tools to use that helps him care for other people. Able to teach at the end of verse 2. This is a skill, it's not a character quality. It's a skill, right? An elder needs to be able to teach. Um... So why then is a skill sitting right here within a whole list of character qualities? What does that tell you in and of itself? What does that tell you about what God is thinking about this skill of teaching? The place that he put it was not over there in a list of skills, of things that an elder does. It's over here in this list that is full of character qualities. Do you know what that tells you? That tells you that God doesn't want this skill to be disconnected from character. This skill of teaching cannot be disconnected from godliness. It's not enough to just have profound biblical knowledge. It's not enough to have tremendous aptitude to impart knowledge to others. The teacher has to be a godly man. The teacher must be qualified in character. And this is why I think that um, this is the only qualification that is actually commanded against someplace else in Scripture. You would never say, don't be above approach. You would never say, don't be gentle. You would never say, don't be temperate. But someplace else in Scripture, it says, don't teach. Sort of like that. Where, where is it? Do you know? James 3.1. What does James three one say? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Why? Because character matters. If you can't control your tongue, if you can't control, you just got to say everything that comes to your mind. That's a character problem, and that kind of character should not be accompanied with the skill. Do you understand? That's why this skill is in the list of character qualities. Okay? Um... To be able to teach does not mean you can back the dump truck up and just dump everything that you learned on people. And they're supposed to feel good about what they heard from you. Shepherds need to be able to impart the meaning of God's word to the sheep. Um, not all teachers will be qualified shepherds. But all qualified shepherds must be able to bring God's word to bear on the life of the sheep in one manner or another. That doesn't mean that every elder needs to be able to preach a sermon. But it does mean that every elder must, in whatever arena, whether it's a a private meeting or a a group teaching instruction or whatever, an elder needs to be able to impart the truth in Scripture to those people. He needs to be able to teach. Verse 3 says that the elder must not be addicted to wine. Literally, the word means this, not alongside wine, Um, The man who is next to wine all of the time shouldn't be an elder or beer or other types of alcohol. This is actually a broader category than drunkenness. Right? It's a broader category than drunkenness. Uh, Obviously an elder should not be drunk. But this is broader than drunkenness. Um, To be alongside wine is not to be a drunkard. Um, but it's not automatically means that it it does mean that an elder can't be known as a man who is always where the booze is he can't have a reputation as a drinker if somebody says hey do you see the wine over there oh hey there's the elder have you seen elder bob uh yeah he's over by the cooler It, it can't be that way that wherever the alcohol is there's the elder okay what's the command to the body? Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine because that's wasteful, reckless living. And that is true, certainly for the elder. But the qualification for the elder is actually even higher than that and tighter in the sense that he can't let alcohol be associated with him all the time. That's what this means, not alongside wine. It doesn't mean abstinence. It doesn't say that. Um, It's not a command to drink. Um, there is space between being not alongside wine and abstinence for a man who is an elder qualified to navigate. Okay? If a man chooses to abstain, he'll meet this qualification. If a man chooses to not be noticed alongside wine all the time, he himself also may be qualified. He's got to navigate that space in between and there is much self-control that is needed. You can see why he would say temperate, prudent, all those kinds of things. Okay? First uh, Timothy 5.23, uh, take a little wine, Timothy, um, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Is that a command to drink? Socially? No. Don't let anybody talk about it that way. Don't talk about that verse that way. That was first century medicinal language. Timothy, you've got stomach issues, um, a little wine with that might help. Okay, so requires a ton of self-control. Uh, and here's something to think about. Think carefully about the perceptions of others. Remember, we talked about each one of these lies in the perceptions of others. Um, you can't control how other people might perceive your use of alcohol. You can't. Can you imagine another man justifying his ungodly use of alcohol because he saw you, the elder, drinking alcohol? He may not know what your temperate, prudent, self-controlled, measured, careful thinking is, but you're drinking and he sees you drinking and his way of drinking is not what your way of drinking is and he feels validated. Be very careful. Um, If you want to be an elder someday, you're not now, and alcohol is a part of your life, you need to think very carefully now about what other people perceive of your use of alcohol to be. Um, The man may not be able to discern the difference between the self-controlled way that you are using alcohol and the ungodly way he uses alcohol is. He may actually equate your measured use of it with his thoughtless way of using it. You've got to be really careful. Okay? Not pugnacious. It's in Titus 1, 7 as well. Literally, it means not a striker. Um, One who's not ready to settle every conflict with fisticuffs, throwing blows, physical intimidation, violence. It's difficult to imagine ever escalating. You you probably would think about this. Oh my goodness, I would never throw a blow at somebody over a disagreement. I can't imagine... Ever doing that. How could it ever escalate to that? Let me give you um, a description of what kind of man is willing to become physically aggressive. Okay? Here's, some, here's a description of a man who's willing to become physically aggressive. Number one, what has to happen for that man? He needs to be in conflicts. He needs to be in disagreements. He probably will be sinned against. He might, he might be disregarded. He might be ignored. He might be slandered. And I say, welcome to Eldering. The man who's going to throw a blow is not a man that everybody loves and agrees with all the time. It's the guy who's disagreed with, who's disagreed with a lot, who who finds himself ignored, disregarded. That man will be the one who eventually, potentially, will throw blows. Number two, it's the man who doesn't deal biblically with those conflicts. He's in those kind of conflicts, he has those kinds of disappointments, and he doesn't deal biblically with them. And they begin to take root in his heart. He has unconfessed sin regarding the conflict. This man, also number three, would be a man overcome then with pride. Uh, He thinks far too highly of himself than he ought. He's too there's too much self-importance. He's too he's too important to be disregarded. Who do they think they are? I'm an elder. And that man, number four, is a ticking time bomb. You put all of that together and that man is an unstable cocktail that will explode in violence. Now, it may not come with a a throwing of a blow first. You might first hear from that man a veiled threat. You might then get yelled at by that man. You might even get that man stepping up close to you physically in proximity just like intimidating you. It might come to a push. Can you imagine a man at that point, if, something like that ever if an elder ever did that, how does he ever get back trust from the sheep? What are the sheep going to do around that guy? They're going to get in karate stance and protect. Can you imagine the sheep having to protect themselves from the shepherd? It all goes back to, look, if you're going to become an elder, you are going to be in constant conflict and disappointments and you're going to be sinned against and people are going to have issue with you. You've got to take care of it there. Because if you don't, it will become something physical down the line. Okay, uh, Gentle is the next word. You can see why he would put that right after pugnacious. Instead, the contrast is he needs to be gentle. That means kind, gracious, mild, fair, tolerant, considerate, forbearing. All of those kinds of ideas. The English word gentle in our minds carries with itself the idea of a softness or a a tenderness. And um, that's great for English, but the Greek leans more towards the idea of fairness or moderateness. That's what it means, gentleness. I like this translation, sweet Reasonableness. There is a sweet reasonableness to the man. It's a man who can be reasoned with. He's gentle in that sense. Contrast that with a man who always operates with strict justice. A man who is always unduly rigorous in every single moment, in every single situation. He's unreasonable. You can't reason with him because, you no, know, there's this and this and this, and that's just the way we do it. There's nothing reasonable about that. It's a man who is strict. The opposite of this would be a man who is strict to dispense justice at every moment rather than being gentle or generous in his treatment of others. Uh, Being gentle means having to wait. It means having to allow for multiple possible cases to be considered in whatever the scenario is before the man. The situation might not be... What it first appears to be. And so a gentle man is moderate. He's restrained. He'll be quick to pardon. He'll be willing to endure injustice for a time. He'll be willing to rise above whatever injustice is going on in the moment. To measure what it is before him that's going on carefully. You contrast that man uh, with the one who is marked by severity all the time. He's rigid. He's exacting. He doesn't want to take the time to question his immediate desire for a strict uh, justice. That's not a gentle man. Peaceable. It's the next word in verse 3. Peaceable. Um, To put it in a negative way, it's uncontentious. This man is uncontentious. This is a man who's not looking always to draw lines in the sand to divide people. Oh yeah, well what do you think about this doctrine? Let me draw it in a line. Okay, you're on that side. just want to make that clear. Everybody, he's over on that side of the line. And that's not a man who's peaceable. That's a man who's separating people. Unity is being sacrificed. Um, he is a man, a peaceable man, is a man who can be made peace with. Um, among the elders, and especially among the church body, peaceableness does not just automatically happen. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's an uphill climb to get to peaceableness. Guess what's a downhill slide? Contentiousness. Division. uh, Separating from one another. Silent treatment to one another. You don't even have to work for that to happen. That's just going to happen if you don't pay attention to it. But you have to climb for and stretch for and work for peaceableness. Elder needs to be a man who loves peace peace and the elder needs to be a man who knows the path to peace i mean he can see a division going on he can see disunity and he's got a plan how to get from there to peace one of the main differences between the church and the world is not that um, they have war with one another and we don't they disagree with one another and they have conflict and we don't what's the difference between us and the world what should be one of the differences when we have conflict, what? We make peace. We find a way to make peace. The church must not be the way the world is, and the elders need to lead by example on how to be peaceable with one another. Next, in verse 3, the last one. Free from the love of money. If a man, uh, if what the man loves is money, then you know what the office will become to him. If, the, if the, really the love of his life is money, and you put the office in front of him, what will he use the office for? Money. To give money. And elders will deal with money. I mean, think about if Paul loved money. Think about if Timothy loved money. What did he have all of them go do? All of his co laborers with him on the second mission the no, third missionary journey. He had them go back through all of the places in Macedonia and Achaia and the European continent and through Galatian region, and they all took offerings from the church. There's no way that they carried a bag of coins. There would have been way too many. So I was just reading this this week. What they probably did is the, the banks back then would write a note. And then they could go to another bank. And that bank would have to be able to provide that. Or you have to go to several banks to be able to provide that. So imagine these guys. Um, there are seven men traveling with, with Paul. They got tons of money for their day in their pockets. And if they saw, if, if they were driven by a love for money and then you put them into an office of sorts, they're only going to use their office to advance their love for money. And we can see that in our day with false teachers using the office to what? Rake in millions. When I was in South Africa um, last summer and driving through the townships, so I used to just get outside of Johannesburg or outside of any um, city and, and there are these Townships that are deplorable places, difficult places to live. And in every single one, there's a banner up on the side of the road for preacher so-and-so, prosperity living. And even though they're all living in shacks, they're all giving their money away to the guy. I heard a story of a guy say um, a grown man had moved out from his mom's shack and he had his own shack. And his mom had saved up, saved up and saved up and saved up and saved up and actually bought him a mattress so he didn't have to sleep on the dirt. So he, she gave her son the mattress. And the man fell under the influence of the false teacher in the place. And he decided that he, what he needed to do was sell his mattress so that he could give the money to God. And that kind of thing is going on. It, you know, it's not dealing with thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars. It's, it's nickel and diming these poor people to death. Benny Hinn is everywhere across South, all, all over Africa doing this. Um, it, it's horrible. Um, the expectation for the body is also in Hebrews 13.5. If you want to write that down, that's the general general qualification for the body or character quality for the body to have as well. But the elder is to be exemplary in this character issue. Is it, Hebrews 13.5. Verses 4 and 5 now of 1 Timothy. Here's a transition from what he is to what he does in his home. From general, um, everywhere, character qualities to specific household abilities. That's what Paul wants to now make the transition on. Uh, this man is now going to be measured primarily by how he provides leadership over his household. And this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's from his own household to God's household. Uh, what's his leadership like over some in his household to what his leadership would be like over many? It is the submission of a few in his house to the submission of many under him in the church. One who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. The verb manages there means literally standing before. Standing before in leadership. Um, It's superintending leadership. He's near enough to stand over it and oversee what's going on in the home. There are two components to this leadership management. Number one, authority is involved. And number two, nearness to the household is involved. Authority and nearness to the household is involved. So, it's not about authority for authority's sake. It's not authority that's absent of watchful, near care. But it's also not about, I just care, I'm president, and I care for you. Absent of the idea of authority. The man must see himself as one who has authority and who will step near to his family to care, from them, uh, care for them from that authority. Uh, the man needs to see himself as one with both of those things. And he is to manage well his household. That means aesthetically good authority and good care. There's a beauty, there's an attractiveness to the way that he manages his home. His management is effective and it's done in such a way that it's actually appealing, it's attractive, it's engaging. And when what is the evidence that he is managing his household well? It's given to us right here. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. The children of a potential elder, guess what, guys? They need to be observed. The children need to be observed for what? How well they respond to dad. But the point in observing them is to draw a conclusion about dad and his management, not the child's character. Under control, keeping them under control, means to keep them in submission. It's to line up in a line under somebody. They follow dad. The opposite would be the children are leading dad around and dad is following up underneath them and they control him. In other words, with this, managing well and keeping children under control is the idea that um, it's clear who is in charge in the home and who is not in charge. Submission is easily identified in the children and authority is easily identified in the dad. The children are embracing submission to authority, to dad's authority. How does the man gain their submission? It says here, it needs to be done with all dignity. With all dignity modifies him and the way that he is keeping them under control. It doesn't modify the children. It's not that the children need to be with all dignity. The man's keeping them under control is with all dignity. What do you look for from the children? If you're considering a man for elder, what do you look for in the children? You look for submission. You look for being under control. What do you look for in the man? A dignified way in which he does that. In the way in which he gains their submission. Listen, submission can be gained in a number of undignified ways, can it not? You can intimidate your children into submission. You can, with anger, manipulate them into submission. You can use the silent treatment to get them into submission. And all of that is undignified. How did Jesus gain the submission of his followers? Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble of heart. He makes it appealing to put a yoke on your own neck around to follow Him. There's engaging leadership that He provides. So there's no doubt who's in authority and who is in submission when it comes to Jesus and His followers. There should be no doubt in the home of the elder as well. So guys, listen. I don't know if... My sense in um, the younger generation under me of guys, especially in the church, is that authority is poo-pooed. I'm just going to be a gentle guy. And by that, I'm not going to really like be authoritarian. I think maybe a younger generation automatically equates authoritarianism is authority. Authority is always authoritarianism. And it's not. You should embrace authority When God gives you authority, and you should run from authority if God doesn't give you authority. But if God has given you authority as a husband and as a dad, you should embrace it and not be a jerk with it. But you should embrace authority and step near to your house and care. And then in verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Here's the argument from the lesser to the greater in this qualification, right? So, here's some questions for you to consider. Guys, do you embrace the authority that God has given to you in your home? Or do do you just kind of go through your day and your week and you haven't really even thought about, I'm the one who's in authority here. Do you actually embrace it? And then another question would be, are you near enough to your family to see how and where they need to be cared for by you in your position of authority? Because those two things have to go together. You have authority and you must be near to them. And you care for your family from your position of authority. When you gain the submission of your children, do you do it with dignity? Best person to ask that is your wife. And if your kids are old enough, ask them. They'll be honest with you. They'll also try to say to you that any expression that you've ever given of them to gain control of them is evil. They'll they will want to maybe make you work through that first and then you'll have to go, Oh, wait a minute. No, that's not true. So you gotta watch out for them, they're sneaky sometimes. Um do observers of my authority in my home, would, would, would people describe my authority of my home as appealing, engaging, attractive, dignified? Verse 6, not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. New convert means he can't be a beginner in the faith, he can't be a recent convert to Christ uh, what's the potential temptation before um, other elders or the church to make a new convert an elder? When does that happen? You know when, it, when, when something like that happens in our day? Um, it happens when we perceive that the new convert really could have a position of influence. Wow! Did you see what sports star just came to Christ? Did you the, the the celebrity? Man, imagine the... If he were an elder, or if he was in a position of leadership here, I mean, can you imagine? That's the temptation that can take place. There's a perceived influence that the new convert may have. Everyone thinks that that type of person, or if it's just a huge business guy, a well-known business guy, and he comes to Christ. I mean, that type of person, to many Christians, almost has magical powers. Or you could just be super encouraged by the passion and the zeal that, for all things Bible that a new believer has. And that's great. You don't want to quench any of that. But that's not a reason to make one of them an elder right away. What does Paul say the new convert is especially vulnerable to? What does he say in verse 6? Conceit, pride, thinking more highly of himself than he ought to come in as one so new to Christ and then yet to be put up so high so quickly in the church in an office of elder, that's not helpful for him. It's not helpful at all. And what's the terrible potential outcome for the new convert? If he does become arrogant as an elder, he'll fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The devil fell because he thought too highly of himself. He was prideful. And every other fall in the human race that is due to pride is somehow a reflection of the fall of Satan. And can you imagine this? How sad that the fall of Satan in pride would be reflected by an elder who's young in the faith. Verse 7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He mentioned the devil again. In two qualifications, he mentions the devil. In two qualifications, he mentions the devil. I just let that sink in. Why do outsiders or unbelievers matter when measuring an elder's qualification? Because that's where the gospel is going, right? That's where the gospel's is going. Um, hey, uh, Mark, would you do me a favor and just shut the door? I think there are, the drama people are coming, and um, they keep coming in here. And heaven forbid we can't have them hear the truth, so that'll just help them. So, um, the gospel is going towards outsiders An elder whose ungodly behavior has maybe even helped harden an unbeliever there out in the world. That's unacceptable. Think about who spends time the most time with an elder each week. And, and I would be be speaking about a, a lay elder at this point, one who's not paid to be, um, you know, maybe separated out in an office counseling, studying, caring for people think about the lay elder who spends more time with that elder each week unbelieving co-workers or the church family a lot of unbelievers Denny how much time do you spend with your small group compared to how many unbelievers you're around at work I mean it doesn't even compare right so what a man truly is is actually going to come out where in small group time let's face it what do we all do when we go to small group we try to be honest, we try to be transparent, we're striving for that, but we always also what? We put our best foot forward all the time. But when you're out working in a stressful situation and you're spending 40, 50, 60 hours with those people, your true character comes out eventually, right? Um, so God here is intended uh, to let there be an avenue of measurement into an elder that comes from unbelievers. Isn't that interesting? And again, the devil's brought up, listen, if the Holy Spirit is the one who makes men overseers, Acts twenty twenty eight, 28, um, the devil is involved in disqualifying them. God himself in the spirit is making men elders. The devil's trying to unmake them elders or never get them qualified to be elders. And he's setting traps to fall into the reproach and the snare or the trap of the devil. If there is an accusation against an elder from someone outside the church, the elders need to listen carefully to what the accusation is. Because Jesus had a lot of accusations against him from unbelievers. But that doesn't mean that he was unqualified. You need to discern what the accusation is. Now let's hop over to uh, Titus chapter 1, and we'll cover as much as we can here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think there is, except which is interesting. It's a term that um, you know. He didn't put months on it. He didn't put years on it. Um, and I think that means that each place, each setting has to really wrestle through what that means. Uh, it, it might look a little differently in um, the Doe tribe in PNG than it looks here. But they have to wrestle with what that means. In the book of Acts, is there any kind of way to draw a timeline when they appointed elders? Yeah. Acts 14. But I've kind of... In Acts 14, when when Paul goes through on his first missionary journey in the southern Galatian region through Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and those places, and he comes back through and it says that he appointed elders in each one. we don't know. Not very much time, but here's what we do know. That you can't exclude in this. Where did he always go first? In every city. Synagogues. What kind of people could you have found in that time in synagogues? A genuine Yahweh believer who maybe had believed all of his life in Yahweh. Having a faith that's anticipating Messiah and now here comes a man telling us Messiah's name is Jesus. And that man's faith, genuine saving faith, transitions into not Messiah anticipating faith, but now Messiah knowing faith. And I think it's very possible that it was those men that they would have made elders. That's in between the lines. But I'm not ready to say either way that it was only those men. And I'm not prepared to say that um, there weren't some other men but I'm not quick to say, well, it was a short period of time, so we don't really need to have a, a lengthy period either. We've got to be really careful and guard that. So, Titus 1.5, for this reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And the, the gist of what's going on, I'm going to skip through a lot in verse 5 there. The point is, Paul had been through the island of Crete with Titus and had Timothy with him. He and Timothy went on to Ephesus and then Paul went on back up into uh, the Macedonian region and stuff like that. And he's writing to Titus and he left Titus on the island of Crete to set the church in order. He gave him directions and now he is putting in writing the very directions that Titus knew that he was supposed to carry out. And there are some things that are undone in those cities, in those churches across the island of Crete. There are some things that remain. There are some things that are undone. And the first thing that's on his mind is appoint elders. In other words, in Paul's mind, a church was left undone if it did not have what? Biblically qualified men serving as elders. So when we go to the mountains of Papua New Guinea and we plant a church, when is that church... What's a measurement? What's a marker that we'll help know know when that church is established? When it what? Has its own qualified elder leadership as they have determined it there. Um, Appoint elders in every city. How many cities were supposed to have churches uh, without elders? Every city. City by city. Church by church. Um, Now let's talk about verse 6. If any man is above reproach, It's a different word. There's a whole word family for above reproach or beyond criticism or blameless. There's a whole word family. This is another one, but the idea is similar. It's the idea of he's unaccused. Uh, He has a character or conduct that's free from any accusation. You can try to throw an accusation at him, but he's got a Teflon character and it doesn't stick. Okay? Um, Husband of one wife. We talked about that in chapter 3, verse 2, so we won't go over that. Let's talk about, and if all we cover here this morning as we finish up is having children who believe that would be a good place for us to be at. Um, The NAS says having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I want you to write down, um, let's talk about that word believe, and write down the word faithful, faithful. And then write down these verses, Matthew 25, verse 23. Matthew 25, verse 23. Listen, this is Jesus' parable. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Write down 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child. In the Lord. Now, does Paul mean to say that he's my believing child? No, he means to say he's a f- saying something about the man. He's faithful, just like the slave in Jesus' parable was a faithful slave. Uh, write down First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen. You know this. No temptation has taken overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is a believer. No, God is faithful. Says something about his character is faithful. And the context determines whether or not it is uh, good character or not. How about 1 Timothy 1.15? 1, 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. It is a trustworthy statement. It is a faithful statement. He's not trying to say that the statement believes. So in other words, the word here, the word family, in fact, it's in Titus 1, verse 9. Uh, It's the faithful word. He's not trying to say that the word believes. Um, It's just an adjective that is overwhelmingly um, translated as faithful. Now, the word can also be translated as believe. But the word's presence itself does not demand that you go with the definition of believe for it. Um, This measurement here in Titus chapter 1 is very much like the one in 1 Timothy 3 for the children that were described there. In 1 Timothy 3, the children are not described as believers, but they are described by their conduct under their father's leadership. And the word faithful in Titus 1 verse uh, 6 fits that same idea. Very much so. What's in view here in Titus 1 6 is not the child's status as a believer or not, but how the child is living under the father's spiritual leadership. Think about how insane this is. The man must be this. The man must be this. Wait a minute. Full stop. Um, does his child believe? All of a sudden, can you control whether or not your child believes? Can you control if you're a dignified man? Can you control if you're temperate? Can you control if you're self-controlled? Yes, all of those things fall under your purview, purview your, your, your responsibility. Should you labor with the gospel in your child's life? Yes, but you may labor all the days of your life and not see fruit. So the word faithful is a better translation than believe. The emphasis in Titus 1 is on the effect of the man's leadership on his children, and that is what the qualifications after. The child's faithfulness under his father's leadership says something about the man's leadership character, regardless of whether the child is saved or not. Now, how do we know that? We know that from the word can just be translated faithful, and the word faithful points in that direction. But we also know by what follows what Paul says here. Having children who believe. How are the children described? By their conduct. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Two negative terms used here. Dissipation means that um, the child does not have wasteful, reckless, extravagant living. The child is um, not incapable of being influenced by restraint. The child can be influenced by restraint. It means boundless debauchery. There's no boundary set on it. It's like the prodigal son who just ran as far as he could into wasteful living. And this description requires from the child a level of maturity. Uh, It requires somebody to have a maturity that says, I know what the boundaries are and I know what you're saying and I'm not going there. In fact, I'm going to go stretch this as far as I can. That requires a level of maturity. It's probably an older child. Older than the one in 1 Timothy 3. The second word is rebellion. That's a refusal to be subject to authority. It refuses to submit to parental authority. It's personal unruliness. You put both of these two words together and you have the description of a wild, uncontrolled lifestyle. How old of a child does he need to be? Well, probably it's a child still in the home since in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, he says that he has... These children, it doesn't mean that his wife had a baby and he has a child. It means that he still possesses the child probably in his home, but the child's probably older than the First Timothy 3 child. Okay. How does a young child become this older, rebellious child? Number one, dad didn't manage his child well when he was younger. First Timothy 3. He didn't, in a dignified way, keep his children under submission to him. Secondly, dad didn't set self-control for his child as a goal to aim at. Listen, if you do not put before your children the goal of self-control, they won't go there. Did you? Did you want to just naturally go to self-control? You have to set it before them. And if a dad never puts self-control before his son or his daughter... um, You can't expect that the child will actually get there. Thirdly, how does a young child become this older rebellious child? Dad restrained the child very little when the child lacked inward ability to restrain himself. Listen, I love the way that Smed talks about it. You can either have self-control right now, or you can have daddy control. Okay, You can either control yourself, and when you can't control yourself, then there will be daddy control. Okay, That's a great way of thinking about it a dad who doesn't ever use daddy control will find his son or his daughter in time when they get a little older a little more mature a little more sophisticated really pushing the envelope number 4 a dad allowed the child to have a low view of god given authority in the home you need to help your children understand that there's authority um, that doesn't mean you're an authoritarian freak. It doesn't mean that you're a dictator. It doesn't mean that you are everything that you're trying to stay away from in your mind of bad ideas of authoritarianism. It just means that God gives you authority and your children need to understand that. And fifthly, there was no discipline or either there was meaningless discipline or ineffective discipline. Uh, I heard a, um, a dad say the other day that mom, mom sp- uh, spanked one of their older kids and um, the the child laughed at mom they're like "Eh, okay that's uh not strong enough um so anyway uh if there if whatever discipline is there if if it doesn't bring about an effect it's meaningless it's ineffective um so having children who are faithful uh, that's our view of it here. There are other churches, there are other men, really godly men, who I tremble to think of disagreeing with, who believe that this is, no, the children must be believers. Well, you know what? Before you become an elder, then um, make sure all your kids have been born, and make sure all your kids have grown up and have believed, have been baptized, and have, are walking and show faith. Don't even think about becoming an elder before then. Because if you have a baby as an elder, not a believer, and now you're disqualified. there 's a radical inconsistency, I think, in this, um, which these great men who have this position do not see and can explain that away, I'm sure, in a way that I just set it up as a really cheap straw man. So probably not really wise of me to do that. Okay. Uh, let me see. What else, if anything, would I want to say? Let me, let me just close with this, guys. We didn't get through all the rest of them. Notice self willed in verse 7. Notice sensible in verse 8. That's the same as prudent back in 1 Timothy 3 2. And notice at the end of verse 8, self controlled. Okay, so you've got temperate, you've got prudent or sensible. You, got, you can't be self-willed, and you got to be self-controlled. There are at least four qualifications that have to do with the man doing what? Controlling himself. Guess who an elder's greatest adversary is in his qualification? Himself. It's not the elder sitting next to you at the table. It's not that family who just won't let up on you it's not that situation it's not that the the greatest threat to your qualification is you it's me Um, we need to be men who are self controlled this is why you must shepherd your heart and bring your heart before the word of God on a daily basis and guys if God never leads you to the office of deacon if he never leads you to the office of elder that's okay but you got to be godly And our prayer for you men is that in time, perhaps many of you will find that you have a a desire within you that cannot, will not go away, and you want to care for God's people in an office of shepherding. So that's what we're aiming for here. Any questions, guys, or comments or a clarification you want? Guys, the last thing I would want you to think going away is, "Oh my goodness, that's that's the godly man, and that's not me." Um, we all need to grow, and God has you where you are, and He has you taking the steps that He has you taking the steps in, and take another step today. Take another step today. He gave you today. We have no idea what tomorrow brings. We have no idea if tomorrow even comes, or if you'll see tomorrow. If you do, you'll live and you'll breathe. But today he's given you, uh, this day only, take another step in godliness. Okay, let's pray. Father, that's what we want today. Would you help us, please? I thank you for these men. I pray that you'd bless their pursuit of you and that you would raise up in this church qualified men to the office of shepherd. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you. I'm guessing there's going to be some people who want to get in here, so eat the food, but be ready for others to come in and put on a play or something.